Well, today we continue with our second week of our Activate series. Greg started us off last week uh, in something that if you missed it, uh, don't miss it. Go back online and check it out. You'll want to hear it. We want you to hear it. Um, It is the heartbeat of this church in a lot of ways. And so Greg started us off. He talked about uh, adoption, our adoption as followers of Christ, but then our responsibility, according to the text, about who we are to be to those who are in need in the community around us. So this is a progression that we've been on. We started in August, and we, we had our Dwell series where we kind of sat in the house of the Lord, and we just took in and were filled. And then for nine weeks following that, we did our Grow series. We looked at the fruit of the Spirit, and the challenge was, now that you've been filled, now let's start to grow. Let's figure out how we can be who God has called us to be. So this um, four-week run that we have here in November is no accident. If we've dwelt and we're growing, then it's time for us to activate in the world around us. Last week, I came up at the end of the service, and I challenged you. We had a the wooden Christmas tree in the back, and I, I'll have you know that when Veronica and I were talking about what this thing is that we sponsor these kids every Christmas, and if you don't know Veronica, she sits in the front row, and she'll be mad at me for doing this, but 90% of what you see in tables and in graphics that have been put up in nice places and in mugs, that she's doing that. Um, she's organizing this place. So 90% of what you see from a, how did that table get there and why does that look so nice? It's, it's usually her. And so she says, well, we usually do this thing because I'm new and I don't know anything. And I said, well, how many kids did we sponsor last year? She goes, well, 15. And I was like, okay. You want to double it? And her eyes were like, you know, saucers, like, uh... Way to set us up for failure, bud. And I said, well, I think we can do it. I counted the number of people that I think are about in here, and I said, we can do 30. So last week I said, can we do 30? And I challenged you guys to make sure there were no kids left on the tree. And sure enough, there were no kids left on the tree. You did 30. So I celebrate you today, and thank you. She calls through to the organization. She says, can we have more kids? They're, you know, scrambling. I don't know how many more kids we can find. They give her eight more. By the time she sends the email out to you, four of those are spoken for. By the time we start church today, two of the remaining ones have already been taken off the tree. And so, if you were one of the unfortunate few who didn't get to participate, we have two kids left. And where 15 was kind of a, I think we can do 15, Covenant Church will have sponsored 38 children. So can you clap for yourselves? Way to go. Greg challenged you to get involved in the four C's. There's the same table right back here inside the sanctuary next to that wooden tree. Uh, we left those out. If you want to be a caregiver, if you want to be a coach, a champion, we invite the church to get involved. And the Christmas tree and buying gifts for a foster kid, a, a child who is um, without parents in this season, is a great first step. And my challenge is that as we walk that first step, that that would only be the first step. That there is a greater level and a deeper dive and a a greater call. And so we've left those four C's out there that maybe something was in your heart last week and you said, "Ah, maybe I should. Maybe if it's still there today, let God work out the logistics, let God work out the hows and the whys, but maybe your name goes on that list today. And so I just wanted to make sure you knew that was there. Because the stories that we were told by Greg last week, the stories that tumbled out of these pages, I didn't want to let it be a one week and we wrap it up and move on. And so that's there. So I wanted to start with that. Today we're going to read from Job 29. And what Job is doing in Job 29 is he's setting up his defense. 
Job has not lived a particularly charmed life. Uh, God is allowing him to go through some tough stuff. And so he's trying to explain to God, as we're going to read, that maybe I don't deserve this. He's complaining, really. But he's mad that his life is going the way it is, despite his righteous living. And we're going to see two wildly important concepts. They're highlighted there. And so we're going to get to those. But the text says, Because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me, and I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness. I put on righteousness. The word there is tzedakah, as my clothing. And justice, the word there is mishpat. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked. I snatched the victims from their teeth. And in a sense, you can hear him go, so why is my life so crummy? Why have you allowed evil to come into my home? Why have you allowed trials and suffering? Look at what I've done, Lord, because I I rescued. And I've been a help to the orphan and I've helped to the widow. So why? Important words here. The first one, tzedakah. Say that with me, tzedakah. You are all Hebrew. Well done. This is the word you'll see most often in Scripture. When we see righteousness, the word is tzedakah. This is primary justice. It is right living. So tzedakah and uh, mishpat are both justice. This is primary justice. Tzedakah is to live rightly with God and others, treating people with fairness and justice no matter their standing. That's what that means. So when you read in the Bible, he practiced righteousness, that's what it's saying. He practiced his life in such a way that he lived rightly with God. It's a relational. He lives rightly with God and with others, treating people with fairness and justice no matter their standing. This is what Job is laying out. I've been living like this. The example I would give you from here that um, is a little bit interesting to me because I don't know if you knew this, but we're new here. And moving from... Uh, San Antonio to Ohio is something of a shift. I don't know if you realize this at all today, but this is colder probably this morning than it will get entirely where we're from the whole year. Uh, So don't laugh at us when we have our our gloves and mittens on and those things. But in one of the most stark, strange, bizarre Ohio things we saw when we came here was I was driving down the road, and there's this kind of wooden stall by the side of the road. This is weird, y'all. And there's bags of fresh sweet corn in this stall. And there's a little red bucket, and there's a little handwritten note that says how much one of these bags of corn costs. And I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, well, where's the person working the booth? I guess it's closed. And all of you Ohio people laughed at me when I told a few of you this story. I said, how do you, you know, who do you pay? And they're like, you put your money in the bucket, fool. Which is totally weird, because there's no one there to make sure I pay. Zedekiah would say, I live rightly and equally. I live fairly with anyone, no matter their standing, right? This is me getting an invitation to live out righteous living. And I would be dishonest if I didn't tell you how easy I thought it would be to take all of the corn and the bucket and run. I thought about it. I didn't do it. There's another summer coming. You wait. All over the place, we start seeing these produce stands and these little money boxes. And I thought, what is wrong with these people? This would just not happen. 
I drove my bike to the university. I had a meeting, and I went from here to there, and I ride my bike, and I, I come out of there, and, and there's a note on my bike. Someone, A, gave me a handwritten note that complimented how much they liked my bike and also told me that one piece of my bike was maybe put on wrong, and he would love to go get some tools from his apartment and help me fix it if I would just call him. And I was profoundly weirded out by this. Like, this is some sort of trap. He's going to lure me somewhere. I'm never going to see my family again. But there's this weird small town vibe going on where you people are like honest. That's Zedekah. Now, Mishpat, this other concept, say Mishpat. All right, now you got it. This is rectifying justice. This is what happens when somebody takes all the corn and the little red bucket and runs. Is This is that rectifying justice that says, A, that's a crime, and we're going to prosecute you. And B, we need to find out how to make wrong things right. Greg sings the song, Making Wrong Things Right. That's Mishpat. Making wrong things right. Making a broken world straight again. These words are used together in Scripture three dozen plus times. Always one with the other. Because one presets the other. And where Zedekah does not exist, Mishpat is required. And so today we start with Zedekah. We start with primary justice. Next week we'll tackle rectifying justice. This week I just want to walk through what does it mean to live rightly and equitably and fairly and justly. Job says, I put on righteousness as my clothing. I deal fairly with people. The biblical idea of right living is always relational. It's never not relational. We have a tendency in this country to make uh, righteousness a personal morality thing. What I watch, what I do, what I say, that's righteousness. And biblically, righteousness is always relational. It doesn't mean it isn't personal. It does mean it is relational. It's how you deal firstly with God and then with everyone else. It's vertical, it's horizontal. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament professor, juxtaposes righteousness with wickedness. In order to make the case of what righteousness really is, he points out that righteousness and wickedness are always shown uh, similarly in Scripture. They're put close together so people can see, oh, that's what that means. So he would say righteousness is a willingness to disadvantage oneself to the advantage of the community. Righteousness is the willingness to disadvantage oneself for the advantage of the community. Whereas wickedness is the willingness to disadvantage the community to the advantage of oneself. So if I take the red bucket and all of the corn, that's wicked. I've disadvantaged the community for my benefit. More than just disadvantaging the nice person who's selling the corn, I've now changed the whole system where people are putting chains on the bucket People are locking the thing up. People are looking at each other, wondering who's done what. The suspicion increases, and I've disadvantaged the entire community so that I might benefit. That's wickedness. We see this in finances. Are they mine, or do they belong to the Lord? For the betterment of his people, for the betterment of the kingdom, for the justice of the world. Biblically, we read it, the righteous would see money as belonging to the community. You have given me something to steward so that I might make the community stronger, better, whatever. Wickedness sees money belonging to self. And so we as Americans, we struggle with this because we're a fiercely independent people. It is our cultural uh, kind of impetus to be independent. We have a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of culture. We have a, hey, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. 
kind of place. We say things like, I've worked hard for what I have, so why should I subsidize someone who hasn't done the same? And that's not a welfare issue, that's not a political issue, that's a general issue. I work hard for what I have, why should I feel bad that he doesn't, she doesn't, they don't? And it's half true, and this is what we have to attack, and this is not fun, but we have to deal with it. It's half true that we work hard for what we have, but it's a half lie. Because it's, it's still a gift from God. It's a gift that all the same, uh, you would have to say, ultimately, you have nothing to do with whether or not you're successful in this world. And I'll explain it this way, because if I were you, because when I first kind of ran across this concept, I recoiled. I was like, come on. I, I work really hard. I've earned some of this stuff, right? And the question was posed to me, what if you were born in a mountain in Tibet in the 13th century? degree or your master's, your wealth or your 401k, no matter how hard you work, by a trick of geography, you're out. You live 24 years, you die of hypothermia, that's your life because you were born in Tibet in 1253. We used to live in South Africa. If you were born in a squatter cave in South Africa today, I would, I would challenge you that all of the hard work in the world does not give you a very good percentage chance of having the things that you and I have regularly. No degree, no master's, no flat screen. We have to humble ourselves enough to see that everything we have, we have because God's grace. God's grace to drop us here now. I was born in America in the 20th century. Perhaps the most privileged century of the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. And so for me to say, I work really hard, so I earn it. The Bible sets up this thing that goes, you should work really hard. God values diligence. God loves someone who will maximize the gifts given, but I could have dropped you in a whole lot of other places. Ask Serge, Serge from the Congo. He and Diane, they've come a long way. And he would tell you he's worked really hard to get here. Doctoral student in mathematics, raising two fine young boys. And yet he would tell you there are boys and girls he grew up with that worked just as hard and caught a bad break, that because of circumstance or position, they aren't here. Because in Central Africa, war is a thing. And when you're born into a country that is constantly at war, there's a whole other dynamic. And yet we take for granted. I earned this. I got this. So it's mine. Scripture says, I dropped you here. I loved you. I graced you. And so it's not. We've had brilliant children born who ended up as slaves. We've had brilliant children born who ended up in Auschwitz instead of Harvard. We've had brilliant children born who would have worked as hard as you and I, but by a trick of geography didn't get there. So don't ever hear me say that God doesn't love your diligence. Don't hear me say that God doesn't want you to maximize the gifts he's given you because he does. But don't lose fact that it is God's favor that makes us who we are. It is God's favor that gives us access to this incredible wealth, these resources to go and change the world. So we're called to maximize his gift, but if you read the scripture as a whole, we're here to maximize the gift he's given us, our geography, for the benefit of the larger community. If it's mine 
then I have every right to act unjustly and ignore what the Bible says because it's mine. If it's his, then I see the world in a totally different way and I go, how do I take this gift of life, of finances, of relational network, of all those things, how do I take that and maximize it? Some of us kick and scream the whole way there. I owe Ruby a cracker for that. We planned that. Because we want it to be ours. Zedekah, properly understood then, is right living lived out. It's understanding that it is God's grace and his favor and his blessing that we might turn around and bless the world. It's relational. Colossians 3.12, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another if any of you has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues, put on love. So he says, clothe yourselves and put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do, whether in work or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, to God the Father through him. Now be dubious anytime somebody starts a, a scripture passage with therefore, okay? Because that's not really fair. Anytime you see therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Because it's referencing something. So we start with, therefore, what's it referencing? Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, and, and our English majors will tell us what that means. We have been raised. We didn't raise, you have been raised. It's a gift. You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 9. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So there's been a transactional change. You once were this, and you now are that. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. I tell you this to say living rightly is not new. Paul is picking up where Job leaves off. Paul is challenging us to Zedekiah, an updated version that includes Christ now. Paul says, put on love. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Same idea. Job says, I put on righteousness. I clothe myself in it every day. And, and Paul comes back and says, yes, put it on. Righteousness as clothing is something we go, oh, that's a neat image. And you go, no, 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 stop and double click it. Why? Because what do you do every day? Put on clothes. You make a choice every day. You brush your teeth, we hope, every day. You have to make a choice to do it. It's fundamental, but you make a choice. We don't think about putting on clothes every day, but we do it. Anybody who has uh, little ones knows that sometimes after bath time, the naked baby game starts, right? You take the baby out of the bath. The baby's just old enough to give you a sweet look and then run shouting naked baby down the hall. Maybe this is just my house. 
But you have to then go corral this child and convince them while they're giggling and laughing, naked baby, naked baby. Listen, we have to wear clothes. No, I want to be naked. No, you don't. Especially with little girls. I'm like, look, I will, I will end you before I let you out in that world like this, okay? And so it's like this war. You got to convince the kid to put clothes on. And then slowly the kid goes, okay, clothes are a good idea. If you walked outside this morning with no clothes on, you would have gone inside nicely and put some warm ones on. We wear clothes, but we don't think about it. We just do it. And this is what's happening here. Job is saying, I just put on righteousness. I do it every day. Paul says, put on kindness and humility and gentleness. Put on love every day. And if you've forgotten that you need to do this, be careful. Job says, I I wear a turban and a robe as garments as well. These are external things. This is where mishpat comes in. So there's these internal things that are underwear, shirt, socks. Those are things, I, I put those on. That's just for me. I just do that because I do it. The next week we'll talk about, he says, then I put on a turban and a robe. I put on these other garments to go out and deal with the world at large. Paul wouldn't mention it if it was a given. Paul wouldn't say, you know, put on love, wear it as clothing if it wasn't something that we needed to be reminded to do. Job wouldn't mention it if everyone did it. And here's what we have to recognize. Some of us, spiritually, are walking around naked and we don't even know it. Some of us wake up, we're in a rut, we're in the rat race, we do what we're going to do. We get up, we rush, off to the next thing. We don't stop to put on love. We don't stop to put on righteousness to consider what does it mean to wear humility today, to God protect me, get, keep me gentle as I go into that meeting, keep me humble as I go in to deal with this child. And we just walk out straight out of the house, spiritually naked. Biblically, you see shame and nakedness joined. In the garden, when Adam and Eve uh, take the bite of the apple, they recognize their nakedness. And it says what? It says they're ashamed of it. Nakedness and shame are always juxtaposed. They're always placed right together. That when people recognize their nakedness in any form or fashion, they feel shame. So I would ask us, if we start our day without first putting on love, without considering what does it mean to live rightly with people, without considering how God has made it right with us, and then how will I deal with the world around me, we walk out the door naked, and if that is true, we should be ashamed. I would say we need to be better storytellers. This is not a complicated thing. This is not actually even that hard. Part of the way that we turn the tide in our own minds, part of the way that we start to get our hearts back in line with the heart of God is to become better storytellers. You ever gotten bad service at a restaurant? The answer is yes. How do you react to that? What story are you telling about the bad service you got at the restaurant? Wow, she's a terrible waitress. You know that thing when they walk by and you have an empty drink and you kind of like shake the ice in the drink hoping they'll see it? Real passive-aggressive like? Like maybe she'll notice my tea is empty if I shake it as she goes by and she just keeps walking. And you're like, tip just dropped 2%. You get bad service and you start telling a story person she's probably like on drugs or something i don't know what her story is she doesn't even like us she's racist she's the same as you doesn't matter 
And we start telling a story like, why, why would she do this? This is called the fundamental attribution error, where we attribute to others what we'd never attribute to ourselves. You ever had a bad day? What do you do when you have a bad day? You snap at your spouse, you snap at your kids, you tweak it in traffic, that stop sign with three cars in it. What do you do? We justify it. We rationalize it. Well, I've had a long day, or you don't know what's happening in my life, or my wife is sick, or my kids are misbehaving. Or we, we come up with all these reasons why we're having a bad day. The waitress, she's a terrible person. Me, you don't understand what's going on in my life. And man, we all go, oh, that's true. We do that. So what story are you telling about the waitress? Is she a terrible person, or is she a person in terrible circumstances? Now, maybe, maybe... Maybe she's just not a very good waitress. That's possible, right? And that's okay. But maybe she's not having the best day. And so what we have to do is eliminate the me-centric worldview we carry and start taking on a God-centric worldview to go, what does it look like to love this person in this moment? If I put on love today and I'm getting terrible service, what do I do? Scripture says, while we were yet enemies, while we were having a pretty bad day, God loved us enough to send his son. He didn't send what we deserved, a fireball from the heavens. He sent his son, who took our pain, who absorbed our wickedness, and as a result, gave us new life. So what would it look like to practice zedekah for a bad waitress? To disadvantage oneself for her benefit. A big tip with an encouraging note. Hey, I see you're having a bad day. I hope this turns it around. What impact might that have? Maybe you invite her over to the table and you ask her to pray with you. Hey, you look stressed today. Can we take two seconds of your day and pray for you? In a dozen years of ministry, I've never had anyone turn down a prayer, ever. But that's the difference between telling a story about a terrible person and telling a story about a child of God who is in need of love and just treatment. You say, but this doesn't make sense to me. The black and white people in this room go, but you give her a big tip. You're enabling bad behavior. She didn't earn it. Exactly. We don't realize how deeply we're bought into the idea that we did. So when we live in a way that's counter to the grace that we receive, sinner saved by grace, through no work of my own, so that no man should boast, God sent his son to save me while I was still an enemy. I didn't earn it. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and live that life. If you're my follower, take up your cross. Go and live that life. Either functional Arminians at our best, believing that we can shift our salvation based on our behavior, or we're believers in karma at our worst. Well, it goes around, comes around. She'll get hers. We get what we earn. None of us do. So why would God have us perpetuate a lifestyle that runs so counter to his presence in our lives? Why would he ask us to perpetuate a lifestyle that runs so counter to his presence in our lives. If you run a company, 
people are going to be held accountable to their actions, right? This is not saying your worst employee deserves a raise. So don't, don't conflate wrong things. But relationally, what does it mean to dispense grace upon grace upon grace? This is not about charity. It's about being in right relationship with God and therefore finding out what it means to be in right relationship with others. It's his desire to see all people made whole. It's his desire to see that every aspect of brokenness we see in the world around us is our opportunity to activate and enter into it. Bad service at a restaurant is not a bummer for your day. It's an opportunity for you to activate into the kingdom of God. Can I pray for you? Can I write you a note? Can I change your day? Can I impact your trajectory in some small way? That if you were having a good day, I wouldn't have the opportunity, but you're having a bad day, so here I am. Lord, use me. I've heard the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We're going to remix that. We're going to have the covenant rule. Do unto others as God has done unto you. That's a rule. Do unto others as God has done unto you is what the call of Christ is. The gospel laid out says, this is what has happened for you. Go and do likewise. You will be my, my missionaries. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You will have the Holy Spirit. And you will go amongst my people. You'll be my ambassadors, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are Christ's ambassadors. As though God was making his appeal through us. We're his ambassadors of his grace, of his glory, of his beauty. And so what we look for is what God looked for. God looked at our world and saw total bankruptcy and brokenness. And his decision was, let me enter in there with the light of the world and send my son. And so when you and I see the world around us and we see, ugh, bummer. And that's not a reason to come back into the Christian bubble. That's a reason, an invitation to go out and impact the world with the light of Christ. We are a dispensary of grace and hope and love and joy. Why? Because we've been given it so richly that it has no choice but to overflow from our lives into others. What's at stake? What if we as Christians were known for such things? I'm part of a, a healthcare ministry. I don't have insurance. We are part of a Christian co-op. What this means is when we go to the doctor, they say, can you give us your insurance? And we say, we don't have any. They look at us and give us this pitiful, uh, look, at which we say, this is going to sound weird, but we're part of a Christian co-op. We pay cash, we send them the bill, and this group of 150,000 American believers pays for it. And when they have an issue, they send the bill in and we pay for that. And all together we combine and we take care of each other so that no one has to carry an unfair burden. We make the joke that we paid $16,000 for Brixton, our four-year-old. She cost us sixteen grand. I paid her off in installments. We owned her outright from the hospital when she was about three. Like the hospital had a lien on my kid. They could have just called her in any time. And we said, we're not doing this anymore. There has to be a better way. And so we joined into this co-op, and I was super cynical, and yet it works. And it's a ministry, and people look at us like we're crazy. What do you mean you don't have insurance? What do you mean Christians pay for each other? And we're like, well, it says in the Bible we should do that. 
So we decided we would do it. I don't know Christians that do stuff from the Bible. Well, how much curiosity does this create? A few months before we moved here, the New York Times sent a reporter into my living room. Photographer on Sunday morning followed us around, came and had leftover pizza at our house after church. And the New York Times uh, reporter sits on my couch and we spend two hours talking about what is this that you're doing? And it makes the front page of the Sunday paper, Christians in Healthcare Sharing Alliance, with the general idea as she leaves, flies back to Washington, D.C., she says, this is just weird. And I said, I know, but it's beautiful. So in the New York Times, because we decided to live in a way that we felt was righteous and just from here, there's a big picture of me, unfortunately, in the New York Times, local pastor shares expenses with other believers. When you live this out, it changes the world. People take notice. The world expects us to be hypocrites. It expects us to say one thing and do another. When we live this out, practice righteous living, Zedekah, the world goes, wait a minute. You actually do that? You actually love people who were downtrodden? You actually take in orphans? You, you do that? Yeah. And then they say, can we talk more about it? And God begins to draw people in. Think about what we're known for in this church, open homes. We're a church that takes in a child in need. Global connections, Thanksgiving dinner. If you're not from here, you're family to us. What does that communicate about the gospel? The daughter project. That house down the street that most people don't even know is there. They don't know that it came as a result of Covenant Church. Donating some land, having a vision with a guy to rescue survivors of sex trafficking. When you're known for world-changing, right living, the gospel is magnified. And it isn't upon you to throw Bibles at people or have the 10 steps to a better life on your tongue at all times so you can minister to the checkout lady at Kroger. You don't have to do that. When you live rightly, the gospel is clear. These are incredible things. And these are things, these ministries would be increasingly unnecessary if we live rightly first. Those are all mishpat. We take care of orphans because something was broken. We take care of the trafficking survivor because something was broken. We take care of those who are immigrants and have been forgotten because something is broken. Restorative justice is required because our primary justice has failed. And so if our role on earth is to be ambassadors, then we have to figure out what does it mean to dispense primary justice, get it right the first time. God is not challenging us to go deeper into religion, but to get serious about righteousness. He doesn't want us to be more religious. He desires for us to be more righteous. Living rightly with our whole lives. Whole life righteousness is spiritual, it is physical, it is financial, it is relational. So here's where we end. Put on love. Clothe yourselves in righteousness. Put on love. What does that mean? Do you start every day there with the word? 
with a devotional, with something that clicks and reminds you and says, this is not your life. You have been bought with a price. Put on love and go and display. Two, become a better storyteller. Look at the people around you and begin to tell a different story about them and tell the story of when you enter into their lives and see change happen. Three, ask God to open your eyes to injustice. It is everywhere. But it's really easy to get through a week, house to car, to job, to car, to house, to television, to sleep, to car, to job, house, without seeing any of it. So if you want to be really bold this week, ask God to open your eyes to injustice. Fourth and finally, I would ask that we as a community begin to live out the remix golden rule. Do unto others as God has done unto you. And if we live that out, just watch the fire and the passion that the Holy Spirit will burn through this place in an amazing way. As people start to go, what is it about these people and how do I have it? Let's pray. Father, we are challenged. I'm challenged by your word. God, I know that it's, it's not my daily rhythm to live for others first. I wish it were, but Father, if I'm honest, I confess. I struggle. I see me in the mirror, and that seems to be the subject of the story. And so, Father, I would ask today that you would reorient my heart and my eyes. That you would let me see that you were the subject. This is about you. This is from you. And I'm the object. The thing that you desire to use to see this world change. So I pray that this week that uh, I and that we would be able to do unto others as you've done to us. Father, when we were in need and drowning, you sent your rescue. When I was your enemy, you sacrificed your son. When I was hopeless, you sent hope. When I was in the dark, you sent Jesus as light. You called me to you. You said, come follow me. So Father, as a person, as a believer, as someone who said, yes, I will follow you. My prayer is that this week you'll remind me what that looks like. That you'll lift me up when I fail. And you will use this community that we might encourage each other to inch closer to what it means to living rightly with others. Father, thank you for this place and this community. Thank you for what you're already doing amongst these people. Pray that you would guide us, show us favor as we seek you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.